House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. We got Mr. Martini. Uh, I'm here making the cocktails. Making the cocktails in the, in the basement of the House of Mystery. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have never left there, have you? The basement? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> you, you won't let me out. Well, I, that's for the protection of society. Well, that's true. That you true. Know, it's not the best. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. Um, we've got enough dangerous people out there. That's right. Ah. Anyway, It'll be dangerous, Dave. From now on, danger, dangerous, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> you know, I know. Yeah, I know. You're just uh, just couldn't wait to get out and see the uh, Johnny Depp trial. You want to get out there and start screaming at all the people and yeah. yeah but uh, <laughs> couldn't let you out. No, that would no, have been no. You would end up in jail. I know. That's right. <laughs> That's just you so keep me safe. Keep you keep you safe. You know, or you can't be dressing like Amber Heard. You know. No. <laughs> One is enough for this country. No fish uh, costumes either. No. <laughs> Aquaman, yeah. Oh, yeah. Boo. Okay. Well, let's get on to the even more dangerous character. So we've got um, a writer today. His uh, book, I was going to say his latest book, and it is, but it's also his first, is uh, called Bottle Lightning. And uh, it's Mr. L.M. Weeks. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I always say, wait till the end before you say it was a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) We're not. (laughs) Oh, most people get through it. They don't hang up on us too often. Um, Well, so what made you get into writing? I mean, you were, it looks like, uh, practicing law for a long time, right? What, 30, 34 years. So um, what would make um, someone being fairly successful in the legal department all of a sudden go, well, I'm going to write a book. Well, um, it, it, it's, I, there are probably a lot of writers like this. I think a lot of lawyers are, you know, want to be um, actors uh, or, or writers or failed actors or, or, or writers. But um, in my case, uh, I participated in some creative writing contests uh, when actually I was in grammar school. So between, I think, uh, fourth and sixth grade. And I won a couple of contests and, and winning was wonderful because it got me out of school for uh, a day uh, when we went to a we were sent off to a writing course, and then um, I um, uh, quote unquote produced a couple of plays based upon uh, the novels Dracula and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and and starred and uh, and directed them as well. And so I, I always wanted to do something creative, but my my lawyer, my father was a lawyer, and I saw him do a handle a murder trial where he uh, defended on a pro bono basis somebody who um, was indigent, an an older gentleman with a tracheotomy. And uh, I was in junior high when I saw that. And that was better than Perry Mason or, you know, some TV lawyer show. And I thought, uh, wow, that's really interesting. And I decided to become a lawyer. Well, there's quite a difference in in the process of writing and the way you even think as a lawyer. I would think there's, a, I mean, the good thing is there's a big structure to it. There's a structure to um, practicing law and a lot of studying and research, um, and it can and that can cross over to writing a book. 
Um, but there's also, it's a different type of, uh, of writing. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think the, um, the, the, the discipline, uh, can translate over and, and be helpful. And as you mentioned, the research, um, skills can be helpful even, even though you're, you're writing something that's, uh, fiction. Uh, in my case, I have to do a fair amount of research on various topics. So, that ability to do research uh, is helpful, but it turned out to be, although I thought I was a pretty good writer, turned out to be far more difficult to uh, write something uh, that's fictional than the legal writing that I had engaged in for, for decades. And I can give you three examples. One is um, that when you write something for a client, for example, they they want to know the summary or the conclusion right up front. So right at the top, you're going to tell them uh, the conclusion that they need to go off and do or not do uh, whatever they're looking to do. And in a novel, by contrast, you want to hide the ball or the conclusion all the way until the end. And and then another example is that in a uh, when you're when you're engaging in legal writing, except for when you're um, being an advocate and writing a brief in in a court case, for example. Uh, but if you're just conveying advice to a client, you you want to convey it in a way that doesn't trigger their emotion. So it's just a just a uh, nothing but the facts, ma'am, sort of dragnet style uh, of writing. And uh, and the last thing you want to do is is trigger the, the client emotionally. Because you want them to, to act rationally, whereas, as you know, in fiction, you, you want to be triggering the client, the uh, reader, all the way along. Otherwise, they're going to stop turning the pages. Um, and then uh, finally, the other thing you don't want to do with a client is trigger their imagination. You don't want them guessing at your advice or guessing at, at the fact pattern that you're outlining uh, in the memo. Um, but but for readers of fiction, you want to be trig- giving them just enough information to trigger their imagination to to paint a picture uh, of the world that as they as they see it, um, with enough information to also you know continue the story and set up the story for the for the next scene, and uh, and that that was very challenging for me because I felt like I needed to fill in all the white spaces. When I was describing a room, for example, or a location, and so that resulted in a lot of overwriting, which my editors, God bless them, um, helped me pare back quite a bit. Well, how, how did you go about learning the craft of, of fiction writing? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 I gave myself a timeline um, for, for finishing a manuscript, and then I just sat down and started writing. And I, uh, I read... Uh, various books, including uh, Stephen King on writing mm. and some of Hemingway's missives on writing. And there's an, another famous book, and I'm probably going to get the title ro- uh, wrong, but it's something to the to the effect of uh, the the um, uh, skills of the selling writer or something like that, which is a relatively old book, I think, from the 1960s or 70s. And and that was those were quite helpful. And then there there there's loads of Good stuff on YouTube, although you have to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Mm. And and so I just I just sat down and 
did it based upon you know my own uh, studying so to speak and then um a friend of mine who's a, a best-selling author introduced me to an editor and i think that's really where the the um the, the learning began I, I thought that you know i was so happy when i finished the manuscript and and i felt like there was a huge amount of pain involved in and struggle involved in getting the manuscript done i had no idea that the real struggle started after i received comments from the editor yeah they're always a problem i i i <laughs> I, I, I always i always end up uh finishing them off you know i end up you know, they never work again after I, you know. No, actually, the, the editors in reality, if they really want to make a better book, and if you get one that you would connect with, it turns out really good. Um, but yeah, I, uh, Somebody yeah. told me, actually with another author, told me that, um, and I, I thought this was great, uh, a great way to describe it, that the first draft is for the writer, and then the subsequent drafts, you know, based upon editors' comments, are for the reader's. And uh, I really liked that. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd imagine now because you've got there's a lot of Japanese involved in this, and I see that. Of course, you spent a lot of time in the Japanese culture, and you know the language and everything like that. So I'm guessing all the way through, you've probably put a lot of yourself into this whole, into the book and even the characters. I think I think um, that's a fair statement. Uh, it's sort of inevitable, particularly with a first novel, um, to that they're, they're, to to avoid. You can't avoid all of the uh, autobiographical um, elements. Um, at least if you're going to write about something you know, right? And and uh, one of the first rules I heard was write about what you know, and that's what I know. So. Um, I tried to pour that into it, but when it came to characters, I found that if I, uh, that, that if I tried to base it on somebody I knew, it was too limiting and it also, um, it limited both what I could say about the character and also how they fit into the story. And so I, once I had that kernel, even if it was based on somebody or an interaction with somebody, um, it was based on, whether it was based on somebody I knew or whether it was based on an interaction with somebody, once I had that kernel, then I, I made up everything else around it, so to speak. Well, I, I see that you're um, a black belt in Aikido. Yeah. And, you know, being a martial artist myself, I was wondering, did you use your martial art experience to um, write your action scenes or anything like that? Uh, it, it definitely helped. Um, the, the caveat there is that was decades ago. I could probably mm. um, barely fight my way out of a wet bag <laughs> at this point. But... Um, <laughs> I, I did, I was pretty diligent at the time, you know, going five days a week and that kind of thing. And, um, and I have a friend who, um, is still competes in, in judo in Japan. And, and I talked to him about it quite a bit. Um, and I'm a fan of it. You know, I'm a fan of the, the, the movies, uh, for example. So yes, uh, I was, I was definitely able, able to use some of that. And, um, also there are some motorcycle scenes and I, love motorcycle riding so i was able to use my experience riding motorcycles in japan um to write those scenes and what there were there were there was actually more about motorcycles in the book and the first chapter i i wrote was about was a motorcycle ride that's not even in the book anymore and that ended up on the cutting cutting room floor but 
one of my editors, I think, in one of his first comments was less motorcycle fetishness. So, um, <laughs> and another friend of mine commented, you know, this reads like a motorcycle manual, don't you? So anyway, I had to uh, cut quite a bit of that stuff. Did you have a purpose or a point in your mind when you were writing the book? Like, was there was there a, a thought? And I guess the question would be, when you when you go to sit down and write this book, did you have a question or did you have a character that you were building this story on? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I As I got older, uh, I, I kept thinking, I had this idea uh, of a story based on an international lawyer practicing in Tokyo. And I, I thought I could build something around that. And the older I got, the more I just, I was really feeling compelled to write this. And then I hit a point where I thought if I didn't, don't write it now, I'm never going to do it. So that's when I really focused on it in, in earnest. But I just, I've had so much fun practicing law as an international lawyer in New York and in Tokyo. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of drudgery <laughs> in it, particularly at the junior level. And, um, there's a lot of burnout. Uh, but, um, at a, at a certain point, I was able to really start enjoying the practice and the, the, the cross cultural aspects, the, the cross border aspects, the, the cross language aspects, I found very, very intriguing. And, uh, and my son is, is biracial. His mother's Japanese. So, uh, and, and I've seen him deal with that both in the U.S. and in Japan where you're sort of betwixt and between. So he's sort of like a shapeshifter. He can be New York for one minute and then fly to Tokyo and be Japanese the next. But, but he's, it's, it's sort of like he's always, he's never quite one or the other. Um, and I found that fascinating. Uh, and I just thought if, if done right, it could be just a fun read for people. So I guess my goal was to create something that's a fun read for people. Hmm. Um, that's, that's, it's an interesting idea. Um, what, what is it? Well, I guess at the end of the book, what is it you hope someone takes away from this story besides the entertainment or was there something? Well, well, so it's interesting. You should ask that because I didn't have like a moral, you know, sort of a sub theme involved, uh, in mind at the time. It was more sort of, um, I, I had my the, the books I was channeling or thinking about at the time when I wrote it were there's obviously the James Bond series there's uh, Shibumi which is which is a, a crazy book um, and there's the girl with the dragon tattoo and Red Sparrow and and just something that's involved international intrigue that's uh, uh, sort of a legal thriller, although it's not a classic legal thriller in the sense that there's no court case, um, although there is corporate boardroom drama. Um, and so I really, Al, I didn't, I didn't think about it at the time, but when I got to the end, it, you know, your characters, you have, there's, there's the climax and then, you know, sort of the wrap up. And it, I heard somebody say somewhere along the way while I was writing this, that your character's don't or shouldn't get what they want, they should get what they deserve. And that really resonated with me because I thought, well, that makes it much more realistic, right? Um, obviously. Um, 
And uh, so I, after I finished writing it, somebody else asked me a similar question. And, and what I, when thinking about it, what I realized the answer is even somebody who is personally has some real flaws and, and personal issues can it can achieve great things. Um, and and that's sort of uh, the, the sub sub theme, I think. But that doesn't mean you don't have to pay the piper, right? It's kind of like um, Moses not getting into the promised land because he doubted the the word of God, right? So he was the only one who couldn't cross the River Jordan. It's sort of like that. Obviously, not on that you know grand of scale, but um, it has that uh, feeling to it. Well, I, I know this is a big question, um, but you're talking to, about your son, and it made me it made me think of it. Um, what is maybe the biggest differences between living and practicing law in Japan versus uh, the United States? Well, I think for um, uh, a non-Japanese person um, or uh, somebody who's half, um, in, in New York, anybody can be a New Yorker. Uh, if they're there long enough and if they work hard enough, you can fit in and become a New Yorker and feel like a New Yorker. And But in Japan, um, if you're not Japanese, you're always sort of, you're, 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 you're categorized, you're in a certain category. And um, yeah. in Japanese culture, that's always, they're, they're excellent and amazing at categorizing people, categorizing everything. And you're always in that category and there can be good things and bad things about it um but you're you're always no matter how good your japanese gets no it becomes no matter how culturally adept you become and how sophisticated you you become you're always looking um from the outside in mm-hmm. whereas in new york um i even though i grew up in i i was born in alaska and i grew up in idaho and so i'm not really a new yorker but after I'd lived in New York for several years, you know, I felt like a New Yorker. I was, um, you know, Wall Street lawyer, um, just like anybody who'd grown up in Man- Manhattan. Uh, but in Japan, you're, you're always a gaijin. You're always a, a, a foreigner. Um, now that's changed quite a, quite a, a bit and, and there, it's got better, but Japan is, its history is not the same. And I'm not, I'm not making a, a judgment here. Um, it's, it is what it is. Uh, you know, the U.S. is the is is the country that was built uh, through immigration, right? So we're all children of immigrants, almost all of us. Um, Japan was not built that way, and in fact, closed the country to protect itself from colonization around 1600 for almost 260 years. It was completely closed to the outside. Yeah. So there's been very little historically immigration there. And so the difference between Japanese, even the differences that Japanese, the distinction, distinctions Japanese make between Japanese and Koreans and Japanese and Chinese are quite clear. Now that's true, I should say, in China and Korea as well. They, all the countries, it's sort of like Europe, um, in the, in that regard. People have very clear, uh, national identity and those don't, those don't meld uh, very much. Well, what do you think, what do you think that, um, people get wrong about Japanese culture in general in America? Um, I don't know if they realize now um, the experience, the experiment that is going on. And, and uh, so 
I guess there's two two parts to the answer. One is that um, China, as you know, went through a cultural revolution, and in China, if you look at it, there's a there's a long history of that. So they, there's this this um, history of you know 200 w, uh, empire will last about 200 years and then it will collapse, and and then a new one will rise, and 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 the, the subsequent empires always sort of try to change or rewrite the history of the previous empires. And for example, the Mongolians really ran uh, China at one point in time, and that's sort of a sore point for, for China. They don't like, they in fact tried to erase that that part of their their history. Um, but the Japanese were, were never really colonized by, by anyone. And actually the, the Mongolians tried, I think in the 12th century, and that's where you get the story of the Kamikaze destroying all of their ships. Um, uh, and preventing them from conquering uh, Japan. And so really up until World War II, Japan had never been conquered. And then uh, the Americans came in, but then they basically left. They, there's some bases there remaining, but they left the emperor in place and they, they really didn't you know, completely change the culture. So the culture has really not changed for a thousand years, which means it's quite rich and diverse. Uh, it, and and it used to be a um, it, it was it was it was basically uh, a bunch of little fiefdoms until it was united around 1600. And each of those areas, which are now separate prefectures like our states, um, have their own subcultures, which are very old, and 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 their own food, and and sometimes their own language, their dialects that people from Tokyo or other prefectures can't understand. So. The language, the, the the culture is quite deep and quite diverse, um, and um, and and really hasn't been that changed, hasn't been changed that much by modernization. Um, and, although it is a very modern uh, country that's very pleasant to work in, the the or live in, excuse me, both live and work, uh, particularly if you speak the language. But the other interesting thing about it is you have a, a declining and aging population. Um, which a lot of countries do now. Uh, in the U.S., we're not experiencing this quite yet, although we seem to be getting close. And so there's this grand experiment going on there right now about, well, actually, how is that going to work out when we go from 125 million people uh, now to, I forget exactly when, but let's say um, uh, 2050, and we have 70 million people. Um What's going to happen to the economy? Um, I, I can't tell you, and I don't know the answer to that, but I do know, you know, people are, uh, the country's trying to, to grapple with that. But I can tell you that environmentally, uh, great things are happening because you have less stress on the environment. So the water and air are becoming much cleaner. There's more open space. I fish a lot, so I see this firsthand. I fly fish a lot, and there are places in Japan now that you can fly fish. In, in beautiful clean water that used to be devoid of fish, you know, 30 years ago because of pollution. And, um, so it's a, it's this grand experiment going on about how how do you be sustainable and uh, um, yet um, you know support the aged, for example. Uh, and and I, I don't think there's enough focus perhaps being um, put on what's going on in Japan right now. Hmm. So now when we get to your, your book here, uh, Bald Lightning, um, 
your your main character, you know, Tom or Tony Segura, um, where did that character come from? How do you how do you develop a character like that? So, it, it, as you alluded earlier, um, to the it started out as an international lawyer, sort of based on me, um, and uh, which I, I didn't think that was particularly interesting in and of itself. Um, so I thought of making him biracial would be interesting. And then I had to develop a whole backstory of where his family comes from. And, and, uh, so, uh, I, I invented his mother as being this lawyer from Alaska who married a Japanese fisherman who had to leave, um, the family because he was the third son and wouldn't take over the family business and went to Alaska to make his fortune and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, because his mother was uh, an, uh, an American lawyer, he ended up becoming a lawyer. And so it just, it, it, it involved a lot of time actually putting all these uh, pieces together because it is sort of uh, made up out of full cloth, so to speak. Well, I'm wondering um, how you, I guess, experience your characters. Are you the type of writer that can hear the dialogue in your head, hear your characters, or um, are you mostly, is it mostly a visual experience to you? Uh, it starts out visual. That's a very interesting question. It starts out, it, it starts out visual. Um, and, and it starts out sort of one-dimensional in the sense that um, I just have an idea for this character and then I start playing around with that character. I, I write biography, biographies for them, which I found quite helpful because then you sleep on it, you know, your subconscious is working and um, you you end up with something that's more rich than, than you thought it was going to be. But I noticed that over time, they um, stopped being stick people or stick men on a page and started taking on they 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 started they became a lot and they sort of had um you know minds of their own and so i was trying to pigeonhole them into doing certain things and then i would realize well they're not really going to do that uh, <laughs> given their personality and and that made things more interesting but also more difficult at the same time so um it's it's kind of like you have a a cutout, you know, placard of somebody sitting in your room that you're looking at, and all of a sudden that person, that placard takes on three dimensions and starts walking around the house and talking to you. Mm. Like, holy cow. You know, now <laughs> I have to deal with it's kind of like when your child first starts talking back to you and you're like, <laughs> now I have to deal with a real human being, right? And, and that was, uh, you know, I it sort of felt like Frankenstein because now I've got, you know, people talking to me in my head. Did they rebel against the plot? Um, they, 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 they did in the sense that the ending that I first had in mind didn't work. Um, and and it, so it was it the ending doesn't work, but I don't know then how to end it, right? And so they won't lead me to the ending they're just telling me what's not they're just saying i'm not going there and then you yeah and then which is also like a little kid right and then you have to figure out well where should should they be going um 
And that's when I knew I started getting excited by that, but it also made it more difficult. Yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> exactly. So I, it sounds like you're hearing voices. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. And that's, that was, it, it, particularly at night. Yeah. I would yeah. wake up. And... With a shovel and, and muddy <laughs> shoes or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. So, so torn is, and torn was getting more and more, um, you, you know, he was going to dark places and, and he was a, straight lace, you know, tech guy. He was basically a technology nerd. Um, we had the science background and, and also um, he, he's, he went to, graduated from law school, you know, passed the bar and is now a partner at a global law firm. And so he's, he's pretty much, in, particularly in his professional life, his personal life is a separate issue, but in his professional life, he, he does things by the book. Um, and he started, you know, considering doing things that were that he never would have thought about just a few weeks earlier. Hmm. Yeah. And so, do you act out these things? Do you <laughs> uh, to make sure that they're written correctly? Well, that's a really good question. So, the motorcycle scenes, I I, I drove the expressways over and over again to get them right, um, which was was good but it also it also resulted in overriding at first and um and too much just you know not letting the reader uh, use their imagination at all and so i had to cut that back uh and then the the scenes in the russian far east um i've been there several times so i have a pretty good feel for for the place and that was a was a gold mine for for ideas um and um uh and i i've dealt with russian lawyers and that was also a gold mine in fact uh i was very good friends with the head of our moscow office um which existed until several years ago but um uh so so yeah some of this stuff i actually did live I guess with today's climate and everything, the way you, you've got like, um, some of the, uh, topics in the book, like climate change and you're dealing with Russia and stuff like that. Are you, are you at all concerned with being a little bit, um, I don't know, controversial a little bit or being a little bit uh, in an area that people will either like or dislike automatically? because of the subject? No, and I sort of crossed that Rubicon early on when I started reading about, um, uh, I started writing this in 2017, and, and uh, at the time I knew nothing about, because uh, I, I was living in Japan, practicing full-time, and and uh, I knew nothing about quote-unquote woke culture. This may get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I started reading about it in the um publishing industry and the issues that had shown up in the publishing industry. And so I started thinking, well, should I really be writing about this or that? And, and I, I figured that I, I just need to write what I want to write about and, and let the chips fall where they may, in part because you can't please everybody, right? Um, and, and it's very subjective. I mean, legal writing, people can can point out factual mistakes or that your analysis on when you apply the law to the facts is wrong or, and you can discuss that. But, um, 
but in fiction, I, I think there's a lot more sub subjectivity. So that was one one reason I decided not to worry about that so much. And then the other was I knew it was going to take quite a while and, and things come in and out of fashion. So when I was writing this, I had no idea that what's going on with Russia and Ukraine was was, was going to be going on. Um, and I have friends in the Russian Far East, for example, uh, and Russian friends who live in the U.S. and, and in Europe. Um, and so I knew nothing about that. And climate change, um, we have a very, in our firm, we have a very large energy group. Uh, and they do both conventional, which means gas and oil, conventional energy work and renewable energy work, mostly wind and, and solar. And and so when I was thinking about what technology to use to, to focus on, I thought energy would be a very interesting area. And I really didn't think didn't think about stepping on anybody's toes or I just wanted to write something that, you know, seemed fun and cool and exciting. So, so really, you're a Russian spy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny you should say that because uh, I went to Russia, the Russian Far East, six times. And I was there fishing the whole time, each time. And um, uh, it seemed like each time I went, my time standing in line at immigration in front of the immigration officer got longer and longer. And the last time I went, she, the, the woman behind the glass, picked up the phone and was talking to on the phone for a while um, before they let me in. So I don't know what they were talking about. But, um, I, I mean, the Russians are probably thinking, why is this guy showing up here in the middle of nowhere, right, yeah. this American? And I was with some other Americans um, and some Japanese people, too. Uh, and, you know, they're probably wondering, really? You came all this way to go fishing? Yeah, sure you did. <laughs> Uh, and and one of the places Komsomolsk it's called is where the, the Russians they they build a lot of military hardware including submarines there, and we were flying uh, well, on our way to the river in this helicopter through Komsomol, so I could have I can see where they might have been you know a little bit concerned about spying spying there. Have you ever been to Russia? It's a classic. No, no. It, it was something that I wanted to do, um, you know, years ago, but I never did get a chance to. And now, well, you know, <laughs> no, not now. Well, and the, and the thing about the Russian Far East is it's, it's an area roughly the size of Alaska, um, uh, Western Canada, and and the U.S. Pacific Northwest down to California, roughly speaking, and and Siberia is actually to the um, to the west of the Russian Far East, more in the middle. Um, but there's only about six million people there, and so it, it really is the the wilderness. It's it's one of the almost the whole place. It's just devoid of any human activity. There are a few little towns there, and, and a couple of there's there's three cities i would say um depending on how you describe you define the city so you you end up flying and, and you end up staying in these places that are just so incredibly remote um it, it's it's kind of remarkable in this day and age that those kinds of places still exist mm. well you're lucky you made it out no <laughs> yeah very fortunate very fortunate to make it in and out yeah yeah well, if I would have known the time and I knew you then, I would have called and warned them. 
<laughs> I would have said, you know, he's an agent, just so you know. Just don't don't believe that fishing story, please. I could have come up with a better story. Um, well, so it, when you look back at this, so you finished it now, the book is complete and done. Um, is there anything that you would have changed looking back on it now? And the other thing would be, um, how has it changed you? Like, how did you change as a writer or a person going through this? Um, would I do anything differently? Uh, probably the only thing I might do differently is I'm, so I, it's, I indie published it. I, I set up my own publishing company and published it through that, um, which basically means forming a limited liability company and publishing. And, um, I, I think if I had it to do all over again, and, and the reason I did that is I met people who were successful writers who were self-publishing, and they encouraged me to do it. I hadn't even considered that. And I was in the middle of querying agents um, when I met these people, and, and they were very encouraging and said, you know, do you really want to wait that long? And and they, they had a point because I started this in 2017, and and. It, it launches tomorrow, um, on Amazon. And if I might still be looking for an agent, and even if I found an agent this year, it'd probably be another, what, two years, 18 months, two years before publication, right? So they, they had a good point there. But if I, the only thing I might change is I wouldn't have queried as much, but I, I'm sort of hedging on that answer too, because the querying process was actually, uh, very educational as well. Um, and I learned, I learned a lot from that. Although it was sort of like, not sort of, it was very much analogous to looking for my first job, right? Um, yeah. you're just, you're just sending out query after query and you have to get used to rejection and you're, um, so that was an interesting process. But I think the, the, the in answer to your second question, the way it's changed me is it's, it's really addictive. So there's all this, it's, it's, you know, you're bipolar, right? It's, it's, you're, you're manic depressive. It's, it's these highs and lows and, and, and you think, you know, screw this. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go outside. Well, I don't want to be sitting here and I don't know what I'm doing and it sucks and, and, uh, or I suck and, uh, or they, you know, it all, the whole thing sucks. And then, you know, you, you have a breakthrough the next day and you're euphoric and it's just this up and down, um, part of it that, that can be wonderful and also, you know, very traumatic, at least to me. Uh, and so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get this thing across the finish line. And then I don't know, you know, if I'm going to do it anymore. And uh, now all I think about is writing. Well, I think about fishing too. But, um, <laughs> uh, and so it's, 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 it's addictive. It's really addictive. Oh yeah, and and that 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 emotional um, swing will continue for the rest of your life. Just don't think that's going away. <laughs> yeah, it's up and down like a toilet seat. It never changes. Um, uh, I think I think one one interesting thing that's also different from practicing law is when you're practicing law, you're used to your senior, you know, senior lawyers, opposing counsel, your clients, all criticizing your written work product, both the substance and the writing. Right, just constant. So the partners will, back in the day before everything was electronic, they would walk in with your memo all scrawled up with red pen, right? And they 
literally toss it onto your desk and say, fix this and uh, walk away. And you would have to sit there, you know, um, deciphering the hieroglyphs that were their bad handwriting on the memo and, and revise it. Right. So, but it was all work and you were getting paid for it. And it, it was all very unceremonious. Um, and, but I've noticed that in, in, in the creative world, people give feedback, but they're, most of them are careful about how they, they couch it and they don't want you to slit your wrists or stop writing. Right. Um, and so you, you get this critique sandwich, which I, I found very, um, funny at the beginning because, uh, you know, you get all the, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then, then, but, and the, the only important part of the critique is everything that comes after the, but right. Um, <laughs> until the, the, the other piece of bread on, on the back end where they say, keep it up, you know, you're doing great. Uh, that's very different. Um, also from uh, legal writing. Well, you should be glad you didn't have me as an editor. It wouldn't have been that nice. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> wow. That's a, you had somebody nice because I, I would have been like, Are you kidding? What is this? <laughs> I did have some funny comments. I had one uh, woman editor who said, uh, Why do you keep talking about women's breasts? And I was like, I, You know, I don't know what to tell you. I'm like, <laughs> and and, uh, and I did a search, and and the word breast only showed up three times in an eighty eighty eight thousand word manuscript, right? <laughs> is that is that excessive? So you so you do have to stand up for yourself, but it's 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 hard to know. At least it was challenging for me to stand up for myself. And then beta readers, of course, that was a whole nother. Thing. Oh, they're <laughs> terrible. Yeah, manage. They're the worst, I'll tell you. Beta, beta, well, they are. Beta readers think they know what they're doing, and they're just, uh, you know, get out of here. I'm, I'm not a beta fan. I just think it's terrible. But, you know, they don't love me, so I don't love them. Actually, the editors, it, you know, but the fight with the editor is kind of the good thing. So you got you, you can't hold back. you got to find an editor that you can kind of go back at. Yeah. Not not angrily, but just kind of go. Well, no, this is um whatever. This is what I you know. You should be able to say that to about three times in eighty eight thousand. Yeah. You're talking about. Yeah. You know. Then you kind of go back and forth, and if you find that person that you can do that with, you got it made. Because I found one over the years from one of the publishers I worked with, and and I used her for everything because we can do this back and forth, and nobody gets angry. It's just about at the end of the day, it comes out better. Yeah. You know, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe that's. <laughs> I, I heard a story about Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder, and um, I, I think it was they were talking about Blazing Saddles. Uh, <laughs> anyway, one of the movies that they collaborated on, and, and, and Gene Wilder was writing part, if not all, of the screenplay, and Mel Brooks was reviewing it. And he, and he commented on something and said, I don't know about this scene. Maybe it was Young Frankenstein and it was the, uh, it was that, uh, you know, the musical scene where the monster is, is dancing on stage and singing, you know, yeah. putting on the Ritz. Yeah. <laughs> I think that may have been it, which of course is a brilliant scene. And, uh, and, and Mel Brooks says, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know about this. And then Gene Wilder very passionately defended it. And said, well, you know, for this and this reason, it's going to work. It's great. 
and and Melbrook said, well, you, you know, if you feel that way about it, then it's got to go in. Um, yeah. And I yeah. thought that's that's a that's that's an example of great collaboration. Yeah, I think so, I, I, because it's the passion. You know, that means there's something there, and uh, whether it's one sided or the other, it's just. It, I, I think it's a great thing, and it's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. I my apologies. Yeah, we got to get that right. You know, yeah. because someone will be sending me an email saying, "Well." <laughs> Get it right, man. Um, do you do you like um, social media? Are you kind of um, in this uh, modern world? And you, so you have a website set up, and you have social media set up. And where can people find you? Yes, yes. I uh, I set it up. I was I was not in it until beginning of 2020. Um, but everybody said I needed to be as an author, so <laughs> yeah. I invented. Um, and uh, I'm on Instagram as L Mark Week. I have a website, lmweeks.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, both as LM Weeks and L Mark Weeks. So I have an author page on Facebook, and I'm I'm even on TikTok. <laughs> and uh, I have a very small following on TikTok. Um, and uh, I'm on I I'm on Twitter. I don't know how you guys feel, but Twitter just seems like the silliest thing in the world to me. But I am on it. <laughs> um, and um, I stay away from all of the political discussion. Mm. Um, it, it, it's really funny. It, it, social media is so funny to me because you got Instagram, which I think is relatively a lot of my photos or videos are fishing related. That's how I got a following until recently, you know, with the book launch. Um, and and Instagram, you, you get into a community and people post videos and and photos and, and they're pretty supportive and nice. You rarely get a negative comment. And and people are a little younger, but not as young as the TikTok crowd. And then the Facebook crowd is funny. It's like, you know, just a bunch of middle-aged curmudgeons trying to, <laughs> you know, tell each other how much smarter that they are than they are that they are than whoever they're you know talking to online. It's, and then Twitter is just seems total drivel to me. But that's just Yeah. yeah. Well, that's sort of, it, it's true. I mean, I think for the most part, most of them I just use for um, um, just posting, okay, the show, who's on tonight and, and who's coming up and um, maybe uh, maybe a book post. And then I put really, really uh, as offensive a joke as I can <laughs> each day to see how many more I can lose because, you know, it's like <laughs> There's like 6,300 or something on the one Facebook page. And I'm like, well, let's see if I can make someone upset. And you know what happens? I get 10 more. Um, and then you get, you always lose a couple, you know, but it's just, it's all in good fun. I just want people, I, you know, you got to come on and laugh at this sort of stuff. I'm not big on that. That's why we don't even talk about it on air. We don't get into politics or. Well, I, I, I think it was Michael, Michael Jordan or was asked years ago about, well, what do you think about the Republicans or whatever it was, right? The concern, what do you think about their position on this? And he said, I don't know, but they buy my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought that was, a, you know, it's a brilliant response. And, um, and that's sort of my view. Yeah. Perfect. Well, yes, it's, it's, you know, the thing is, I, I look at it both with radio and with the, with the, the books and stuff, you know, people have, you can find politics right now 24-7 on so many 
channels yes. and networks and stations and shows. So let's just be one that is not, because uh, right. you know I'm kind of I'm kind of tired of it at, now that I'm turning sixty. I'm I'm sort of over it. I'm checking out. <laughs> well, let me just say about turning sixty. You know, come on in. The water's warm. It's it's. I just turned sixty last year, and and uh, and I, I, I it's much better than I thought it would be. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it, I think it'll be fine. It's not like I have much of a choice, really. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I, maybe I identify as a forty-year-old. There you so go. I'm not so I, maybe I can pull that and see if I get away. There, with it. there you go. Why I not? don't think so. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll try. You know. Um, well, it's certainly been interesting. Uh, it, and, of course, we'll have everything up on our site. People can find you one click, and then they can, you know, come after you. And um, something <laughs> you did wrong. There has to be something you said. I'm wrong. sure. I'm sure. Um, but um, how, so, so speaking of wrong, how, how was the last couple of years, but with the COVID and all that stuff, did it, it – and I asked that not so much, that, you know, about COVID, but with the way it was, did it sort of affect your writing um, if anything, it, uh, it, uh, enforced more discipline. So I, um, I was really actually quite fortunate when COVID started, I was in Japan and I was scheduled to come down to the Keys, uh, for three months to fish during tarpon season, um, from beginning of April. And a friend of mine in mid March said, you better get here now because they're going to close it. So I got the keys and sure enough two days later they closed the overseas highway and no one could get into the keys from the mainland and so it was it was sort of like living in the largest gated community in the world and all the boat ramps the public boat ramps were closed including in miami so nobody could get down to the keys with their boat either so i've never seen so few boats on the water i mean it was just wonderful it was like it was i'm sure you know, 50, 60 years ago. So I was very fortunate, but then I had to go back to Japan. I also went to New York and, and Idaho as well. But every time I went to Japan, I had to quarantine for 14 days. And, um, uh, and, and they were not draconian about it in the sense that as long as you weren't coming from Florida, um, where <laughs> if, if you, if you were coming directly from Florida and sometimes from New York, they made you quarantine in a hotel for three days. But most of the time you could stay in your own home and quarantine and then they would call you daily on your phone and track your phone. But I, I'm stuck at home, right? So uh, what else am I going to do? So I, I wrote. So that was actually, um, uh, you know, that sort of enforced some discipline and is, at least for me, discipline is important. Yeah. No, no, I see that. But, but the stress of it, the stress of what was going on, do you think that affects you, right? Because I've talked to a lot of writers, and some people say, you know, when I, when it was going on, I was stressed and watching the news, and everything's crazy, and I couldn't write. And others were saying, oh no, it was great. I just jumped right into it and had a great time. Yeah, I was really stressed at the beginning, particularly before I flew to the Keys, because who knew what was going to happen, right? And and that week before I flew, the numbers in the U.S. were skyrocketing, and they were skyrocketing in New York and skyrocketing in Miami. I didn't, you know, know what to expect and be, and, you know, we all, we all were being told that, you know, we have to wash our uh, plastic bags from the store, what, you know, just, it was, and wear plastic gloves and double your mask. And I was wearing an N95 mask with another mask over while I was on the plane. And 
that was all very stressful. And then I got to the Keys and I was outside every day. So I was blessed compared to most people in the world, I think. But then when I go back to Japan, you know, you're you're enclosed um, and you really can't go out. So, but I did, I knew it was 14 days and I just looked at it as an opportunity to write. And, 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 and to be honest, I stopped watching the news about COVID because I, I learned early <laughs> on, there's nothing I can do about this. So yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna stop watching the news. Yeah, it gets a bit it gets a bit redundant too all the time. It's all you know, everyone's saying the same thing, so you kind of get tired of it. You know. And there's that tracker with cases and deaths, and I, and I thought, how is this helping me? Right. <laughs> I, well, I, I, you know, you yeah. know, I know it's bad, and I already know that. How are these numbers? It's all time. fake. Forget it. It didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just take that road and you're fine. <laughs> just go on out and about your day and nobody, it's just all good. There you go. See? Yeah. Wow. Well, great conversation. Well, everyone, you got to go out and buy this man's book. It's called Bottle Lightning. And, you know, he needs you to buy his book because he's uh, did this without an agent. Okay. So he needs the help. Um, well, we appreciate being on the show, Mr. Al M. Weeks, thank you. Al, uh, David, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to appear on your show. Thank you. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.